Welcome to In Search Of, the podcast where we go in search of people and ideas that enrich and expand a life of faith. I'm your host, Amy Frickholm, and today we're going back to the Bible to take another look at a familiar but utterly unknown woman. In the Gospel of John is a story that most Christians are pretty familiar with. Jesus, on a dusty road at noon, meets a Samaritan woman at a well. They have a conversation that transforms the woman's understanding of who she is and who Jesus is. But do we really know the Samaritan woman? In today's episode of In Search Of, I talk with biblical scholar Karen Reeder. Dr. Reeder is the author of a new book, The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 after hashtag Church 2. In this episode, Karen and I look at both textual and historical evidence for who the Samaritan woman might have been and how our understandings of her have gotten distorted in the long history of interpretation. This is a Samaritan woman I never knew, and yet she was waiting all the time in the text to be seen. And spoiler alert, this episode has almost nothing to do with sin. Welcome to In Search Of, Karen. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm excited to talk about your new book. And especially I want to, I just want to begin by asking you, uh, why did you decide to dig more deeply into the story of the Samaritan woman? What, why were you drawn to her? Why were you drawn to this story? I think I've always been really interested in her story. It's such a long conversation. And that's rare in the Bible. We hardly ever hear women speaking, um, particularly in um, over an entire chapter. Um, she contributes really important points to their conversation. And so I was interested as a biblical scholar and a woman myself in thinking more about her role in John's gospel and what she's doing there. I think I'm also interested because those parts of her story are often not what interpreters bring up. Uh, so I wanted to explore um, how could we reread her story and hear something different there. Um, I'd also say this book really had its origins when I was living in the West Bank myself. Um, I was a Fulbright scholar at Bethlehem University several years ago and had the opportunity to travel to Nablus where there's a church to commemorate the site of the well where Jesus and this woman had their conversation. And that became a meaningful part of my own life that year was thinking about that woman as part of the land I was living in as a guest for a short time. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that. How did that experience shape your reading of the text? Yeah, so of course, living in the Middle East, it's a different land now than it was in the first century, but there still are a lot of similarities in how women's lives look culturally, um, religiously even. And so I think living among Palestinian families and seeing women going about their daily lives and interacting in different ways was a useful lens for thinking about how this woman's life would have actually looked in the first century. So tell us tell us her story from your point of view, from as you collected all this. Just let's for a moment leave aside the tradition of interpretation and just tell us her story from your point of view. 
so Jesus and his disciples have been in Jerusalem for Passover, which is the big celebration of Israel's salvation from Egypt and their formation as the people of God. They're walking back from Jerusalem to Galilee and they go through Samaria and it's hilly. It's probably hot in the middle of the day as they're walking along dusty roads. So Jesus gets tired <laughs> and he sits down by a well and a woman happens by to draw water for her household, which would be, of course, a really normal part of daily life in the ancient world. Uh, Jesus starts a conversation. He asks her for water and the woman's response immediately recognize the ethnic difference between them. She's Samaritan, he's Jewish. And there were different ways that Jews and Samaritans interacted in the first century, but in general, it seems they had a pretty tense relationship and that's what the woman highlights. She knows those tensions, she knows where they came from. Um, and she starts a conversation with Jesus, essentially, about their ethnic and religious differences. Um, she says that the well that they're sitting by was dug by Jacob, who, of course, for Jews would be their ancestor, but she calls him our father Jacob, right? So she's calling, claiming Jacob as part of the Samaritan story. And therefore, the well is their heritage, their inheritance from Jacob. Um, and then she brings up the issue of worship, right? That Jews worship in Jerusalem, where Jesus has just been. But the Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim, which is right above the well where they're meeting and having this conversation. So in this conversation, the woman continually brings up the points of theologically significant division between the Jews and Samaritans. I think we see her as a smart woman, as someone who's really intelligent, can focus in on these key issues. Um, but also through that conversation, she starts to realize more and more who Jesus might be. She goes from calling him a Jew <laughs> to a prophet um, and then raises this question of, oh, Messiah, maybe? So we get this growing recognition on the woman's part of who Jesus is. Um, so at the end of the story, two really amazing things happen. Jesus overturns all the ethnic differences between the two peoples and says, actually, there's a new way to be the people of God. Um, and it's not about where you worship or who your ancestors are. Um, and then the woman goes and tells all of her neighbors about Jesus and they listen to her and they come back to the well to meet Jesus. Um, so I think this story in John's gospel, it's a story of what it means to be a disciple, to talk to Jesus, to listen, to debate him even, um, and to come to believe in a way that allows you to witness to others. Okay, so I'm pretty sure that that isn't the same story that I 
have heard in sermons and storytelling throughout my life. So can you tell about a little bit about the interpretive tradition of the story and, and why that doesn't quite sound familiar? Yes. From the very earliest interpretation we have, which comes from Tertullian in um, probably the late second or early third century, Christian interpretation has focused in on the woman's marital history, which is part of the story. Um, as part of their conversation, Jesus tells the woman her marital history. She's been married five times. Now she has a man who is not her husband. Um, and that is within the narrative. It's what convinces the woman that Jesus is a prophet. He has this special knowledge into her life. Um, but for interpreters, <laughs> that marital history has meant this woman is clearly a sexual sinner. There's no other answer. <laughs> Um, so you get things like, um, oh gosh, Tertullian calls her an adulteress. Uh, John Calvin, oh my goodness, <laughs> some of the things he said, um, he brought this idea that, well, what did she do to make all those husbands divorce her? <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> She is lost in sexual sin. Um, and then you get interpreters calling her a prostitute, um, sometimes in really crass ways um, of referring to her. So all of this attention gets focused on her marital history. And then sort of the assumptions build up from there that, well, if Jesus brings up her marital history, he's accusing her of sin. So this whole story is a story about a woman who is lost in sin, who needs salvation. Um, and then you can take that farther out and say, well, the reason that she argues with Jesus is because she doesn't understand him because she's not smart enough. Um, and she is really antagonistic to him because she doesn't want to give up her life of sin. Um, so we have just a total character assassination of this woman. <laughs> Well, is there sin and salvation in this story? You know, that's a really interesting point. Uh, salvation is there. Jesus is called Savior of the world. But that salvation is different from sin and forgiveness. So it's really interesting if you read this story carefully, you notice that the word sin is never mentioned. So for all the attention on this woman's supposed sin and Jesus' accusation of sin, sin is not part of the story. Um, and that's important in John's gospel because in John, Jesus is not shy of accusing people of sin. He does it all the time. <laughs> so to not find the word sin or forgiveness in John 4 in this conversation, uh, actually should probably say that's not what it's about. That is amazing. And what is amazing to me is how much the tradition, it seems to me as I've kind of explored the Christian tradition, of course, in my own, is how often the trope of 
God can save even a fallen woman, which is one of the tropes that you mentioned in your book as, as one of the, the, the reasons that we read this story. So many preachers and so many interpreters have said, isn't it amazing that God can save even a fallen woman? I, I've heard this trope all my life. I've, I feel this interesting irritation whenever I hear that, um, that, that particular trope. And to see it come out of this story and then to revisit the text, I realized how much my own lens had been shaped by that particular story. Mm-hmm. So that that is what I saw when I looked at the text. So when I read your book and I was yeah. like, wait, I got to go back and look at this text. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I was kind of I was kind of astonished by that. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about why the tradition has had such a reliance on the category of the bad woman or the fallen woman. What the heck are we doing with this story? <laughs> It's so awful. (laughs) And it happens not just with this story, but with other stories about women in the Bible. Um, We just jump straight into sexualizing them in really reductive and negative ways. Um, Yeah, so I think there's a few things going on, I would say. One is a problematic tendency in Christian tradition to interpret women through a sexualized framework. They're virgins or wives or whores, right? (laughs) Those are kind of the three models we have. Um, And that sort of implies that women are only interesting in relation to sex, that that's sort of the role they can play um, and the only contribution that they can make to the story of God's people. I'd say that's connected to um, a concern that runs straight through Christian tradition as well until relatively recently. This idea that sex is probably sinful, right? (laughs) There's, you can't possibly be okay. (laughs) So we have this connection of women as being reductively sexualized with a connection between sexuality and sin that turns biblical women like the Samaritan woman into sexual sinners. And if you have these these things going on, then suddenly the fallen woman becomes the epitome of human sin um, in a way that, yeah, like you, I'm really troubled and angered even (laughs) by those moves. Honestly, it was a little bit of the anger that I found in your book that really attracted me to it. Um, because it's I don't want to I don't want to skip over this too lightly. This kind of mm-hmm. sexualization of women and this kind of connection with between sexuality and sin ha- has real consequences in mm-hmm. our world. And I if you could just speak to that for a moment. I want to go back to the to the Samaritan woman. I don't want us to get mm-hmm. completely sucked in by the tradition and by our own visceral responses to it but I do just I do just want you to speak if you could a little bit to what what is this objectification and the sexualization how does that affect women living today and this is an ancient text that we've been you know reading for 2,000 years and it's not just a problem about interpretation no it's not um, it's a problem with how we are taught or trained to look at women more generally um, in our communities. Yeah, so uh, one thing that 
sort of delayed me in actually writing this book was feeling like, well, there are other scholars who are saying similar things, who are sort of restoring the um, perspective on on this woman. Um, but then the Me Too movement and the way that it played out in the Church Too movement, um, so these protests against the abuse of women and and men and all people, right? That um, it's not just about women, but it often is stories about women and the abuse of women in Christian communities for the Church Too movement. Um, I spent a year just in deep distress and anger and wanting to do something <laughs> and then starting to make that connection between how we interpret the Bible and what that does for people in pews who are listening to these interpretations and learning from them how to view women in in the community. I think that this the sexualization of women, reductive, problematic sexualization of women in scripture uh, turns women into objects of desire um, and objects to be acted upon. Um, and then when you connect that with the really common motif of um, women being stumbling blocks for men, <laughs> right? That they're, they have bodies and they speak <laughs> and they're there <laughs> and that makes them objects of temptation that sway faithful men um, into sin. Um, that is a dangerous connection. Um, and I think it's one that allows women to be seen as potential victims. Um, I think Ruth Everhart wrote a book um, early on in the Me Too Church Too movements um, called The Me Too Reckoning. And she tells this story in that book about a young woman who was assaulted during a church service. Um, while worship was going on. And she asks the question, did that assailant grow up hearing the Bible read in ways that makes women rapeable? And boy, that question just haunts me. Um, yeah, it's really, it is really disturbing to think about how words begin to create realities and realities begin to create mm -hmm. trauma and um, I'm not sure I always know that that's the direction, you know, that it goes words mm -hmm. to images to actions. I'm not sure I always understand why women in this society have been subject to so much sexual and physical mm -hmm. violence. Um, but but as I put those pieces together myself in the reading of your book, I really, I really do think that we need to take these traditions of interpretation seriously and we need to mm -hmm. um, really – begin the work of of changing his stories and and when i read your book i also realized i've told this story about the samaritan woman or if i haven't told it myself i believed it i thought it i mm -hmm. i took it as as a as the interpretation of the text mm -hmm. so it's really striking that i mean i've got this work to do in myself i'm i'm not mm -hmm. i am not finished with this work um yeah, yeah. and one of the things that I was so struck by is what happens when we tell the story and we illuminate 
the history of marriage and women's relationship to marriage in the ancient world. So could you just talk a little bit about um, what happened for you as you explored the lives of first century of first century Samaritan women and then how that context changed the story? Yeah, yeah. Um, I see this a lot with my students too, trying to struggle through. <laughs> but she had five marriages. She's living with a man who's not her husband. This something has to be wrong. <laughs> um, I think an important starting point is to remind ourselves that marriage in the ancient world for Jews, Samaritans, Romans, it was an economic arrangement between two households. Um, so sort of having the Romeo and Juliet motif in our minds is not appropriate. It's not about romance, not about friendship. Hopefully you would have some love for your spouse, but that wasn't the starting point. That was something you grew into over a life together. Um, so marriage is an economic relationship, an arrangement between two families. It's for the advantage of both families. So not even about the two people who are getting married, but about how their households can support each other, increase their own social or financial standing in the community um, by allying with each other through marriage. So women have an important role in that because they're the connecting points. They're the ones who are drawing these two households together. Um, but women were also very young the first time they got married. So we have some records of women as young as 11, 12, 13 getting married. Um, it was probably more the, likely the case that you would be 15, 16, 17, but still a teenager um, when you're getting married. Men tended to be 10 or 15 years older than their wives at their first marriage. It was not unusual in the ancient world to have several marriages because your spouse might die from injury or illness, um, from war, um, from childbirth. Um, so having multiple marriages was not uncommon. Five marriages maybe feels a little excessive still, but there are ways we can understand that um, if a spouse died, then remarriage would be the most common way for women to continue to survive um, in, in a world that really prioritized men um, socially and economically. But um, it was also possible that the Samaritan woman could have been divorced. Uh, that's not necessarily because she's done something wrong. So Families could get involved with ending a marriage if they saw a better alliance with another household. Um, so it could also be the case that the husband might decide to end a marriage without much input from the wife. Um, under Jewish and Samaritan law, women could not divorce their husbands. But they could under Roman law. So it's possible for a woman to initiate divorce under Roman law. Although we don't have a lot of examples of that um, because the children stayed with the father. 
And so if there were children in a family, a woman might choose not to divorce to remain with the children. Um, living with a man who's not her husband. This was actually a thing in the first century. that <laughs> The right to marry legally was um, restricted. So Roman soldiers could not get married. Enslaved people could not marry. Um, Roman citizens could not marry a non-citizen. In Judaism and in the Samaritan community, uh, a priest could only marry someone else from a priestly family. So there were all sorts of ways that marriage was restricted, but you could imagine, um, say there's an important Roman official or a soldier locally who could actually, an alliance with that person could provide a lot of benefits for the woman's family. Legal marriage would not be an option, but informal marriage, informal cohabitation um, was a common workaround in those situations. It's I, not necessary to say she's a sinner. <laughs> are there any hints in the text itself that indicate, for example, um, class or reputation of this woman? Yeah, uh, she goes to draw water herself which might indicate she is less economically privileged, right? She doesn't have someone else to send for her, but that's, it's hard to tell um, just from that one reference. It's, we don't have enough information to, to figure that out. We can tell what her reputation locally was though, uh, because at the end of her story, she goes back to her village, tells all her neighbors that she thinks the Messiah is at their village well, and they all listen to her. <laughs> and not only that, but they tell her, we believe because of your word, um, and now also because of Jesus' word. So the woman's word and Jesus' word are sort of given the same value in the community's belief. Uh, they clearly respect her. She is an honorable person whose word is trustworthy in her local community. So I think that simple fact should give us reason to think, oh, maybe her marriages were not perceived as wrong or sinful by local standards. Another interesting aspect of your book is that you actually, you're not actually the first person to, uh, to tell this story in this particular way, um, nor is it that strange within the tradition. And so if we set aside Tertullian for a moment, um, yeah. <laughs> what are what's the other interpretive tradition that's been available throughout the Christian tradition that we might have all known about if it weren't for Tertullian and maybe, you know, I apologize to the Calvinists out there, but John Calvin. What what yes. what else might we have? Yeah, so for anyone who's from the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they know this woman by her name Fotine, and they know her as a missionary who traveled around the Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel, possibly ended up in Rome, preaching about Jesus to Emperor Nero. Um, some parts of the legends surrounding her say that she actually died as a martyr. Uh, 
So that's a whole part of the church that celebrates the Samaritan woman as a great evangelist in the Christian tradition. We also find through Christian history, um, a number of women interpreters who read the Gospel of John, notice how many women are part of the story, and point to the Samaritan woman in particular as a model for women's leadership. Uh, so we see this at the same time John Calvin is preaching in one way about the Samaritan woman, another Protestant reformer in Geneva, um, Marie Dentier, was identifying the Samaritan woman as a model reformer <laughs> and someone who started a reformation in her own village. Um, and she calls the Samaritan woman a great preacher. Uh, she, she is followed by a number of other women who continue to pick up the Samaritan woman as a model for their own preaching. Um, one of the favorite women that I ran into in writing this book was Virginia Broughton, who was uh, a Black American missionary in post-Civil War American South. And she also identified the Samaritan woman as a missionary and as a model for her own leadership. Um, yeah. What about the word apostle, which I realize is charged, but mm -hmm. th that word has also come mm -hmm. up in relationship to the Samaritan woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think that it's one of the fascinating parts of John 4 is that in that end of the story, when the woman is going off to preach about Jesus to her village, um, Jesus' other followers are worried about feeding Jesus and talking to him about not having bread and what what are you going to eat? Um, and you'd think those people who are mostly men, um, the ones who are considered the apostles, they should be the ones who should be preaching to the Samaritan village. But Jesus is is sort of looking off in the distance and watching this group of Samaritans coming back led by the Samaritan woman who's really doing the work of the apostles there um, in preaching about Jesus and witnessing about Jesus. Um, so for you, what are the most important takeaways? What is it that you most want people who revisit the story to understand? I think that the way the church has most often interpreted the Samaritan woman really minimizes her. Instead of a capable theologian who engages Jesus in the longest conversation we have in the Gospel of John, she just turns into this fallen woman who can't possibly understand Jesus herself. Um, I want people to see her <laughs> as a leader in in her community and someone who is really a model disciple for John's gospel, showing John's readers what they should do. Um, and then I hope that we can all go back and reread some of the other stories about women in the Bible and see how we might have been misled in, uh, in approaching them and in reading about them. Um, 
are there more stories where we've minimized women in in problematic ways? I think it would be super fun for a minute just to contrast John 3 and John 4 if you yes. if you're up for it because in John 3 mm-hmm. Jesus has a another encounter, very important encounter um that takes place at nighttime. Um anyway, just and 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 he meets Nicodemus, one of the leaders in the Jewish community. Putting these stories side by side, what do you see? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that contrast and I think John's gospel wants us to see these two characters next to each other. So we have Nicodemus. He's a man. He has a name. (laughs) He um, is an honored leader in the community. He's a Pharisee. um, So he knows Jewish tradition. He's presumably quite smart and theologically aware. He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night in Jerusalem. Um, So sort of the heart of of the uh, heart of Israelite identity, the heart of Jewish faith. Um, But he comes in the middle of the night and he he starts the conversation with Jesus. But he misunderstands Jesus in some pretty remarkable ways, (laughs) right? Saying that, do you want me to crawl back into my mother's womb in order to be born again? Um, And his conversation with Jesus is pretty short. Nicodemus says a couple things and then Jesus sort of gives a mini sermon. Um, And then Nicodemus disappears and we don't see him again until much later in the narrative. The woman who Jesus meets in John 4 does not have a name. She's female. She's a Samaritan. So from this group that was in tension, at least, and rivalry, at least, with Judaism. They meet far from Jerusalem in this little village. Um, The ethnic difference between them is really highlighted. Um, When we start the story, we think this woman is the opposite of Nicodemus in every way. She's she possibly cannot possibly be theologically aware or intelligent. And yet (laughs) she is the one who maintains her space in the conversation. Um, and she's the one who comes to faith through their conversation, right? Who comes to understand who Jesus is. Um, I think for John's gospel, we're really supposed to see these two characters as mirror images of each other. With Nicodemus, we would expect he's going to understand Jesus and become a key leader in the community. But instead, it's the nameless Samaritan woman. Thank you so much for illuminating this story for us, Karen. I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you so much. I've appreciated this conversation. And thank you for joining me for this podcast. You can email me at insearchof at christiancentury.org. Also go to our website, christiancentury.org slash insearchof to sign up for our newsletter and connect with us. Please follow this podcast and rate it on your favorite podcast app. This helps other listeners find this podcast. This has been a production of The Christian Century, 
a thoughtful, independent, progressive magazine for today.